we are in a, in a series in the book of Proverbs this fall, and it's a topical series. So rather than going through the whole text, all 31 chapters, we typically teach through books. We're not doing that with Proverbs. We're doing it topically. And this week we are on the topic of marriage. Now, as soon as I say that, you're going to have a variety of reactions, depending on who you are, right? But this this may seem like a topic that only applies to some, namely married people or people that want to be married. Um, not true. It may seem like a parochial, a somewhat parochial, provincial topic. Uh, biblically speaking, there are other bigger topics you might think. Um, God's kingdom, salvation and judgment, heaven and hell, creation and recreation and on I could go, right? Uh, you'd be wrong. You'd be wrong. Um, marriage, though it is for a man and a woman, and in that sense, I mean, somewhat um, insular, somewhat focused and not, not relevant to every single person, um, not relevant to kids, at least immediately, not relevant to, to singles that have a call to singleness, um, not relevant to widows that don't plan on being married again, etc., uh, marriage as a biblical topic is, is essentially the topic. It's, it's, there are lots of sort of ways that you could describe, um, the arc of salvation history that the Bible describe that the Bible gives us sort of what is, what is the God's, what's the purpose of everything? What's the point of life? What's God's plan for everything? Where are we headed? Why did he make everything? Where is he taking us? What's he doing with all this mess? Why, why is this mess here? Um, but but I don't know if there's any better way of framing it than than marriage, than framing it with the subject of marriage. That's going to sound strange to you probably, but that is exactly what the Bible, how the Bible chooses to frame its story. Um, and, and let me simply explain it this way: that the first chapter in the Bible is gives us what. It gives us creation. It gives us God creating everything. The last chapter in the Bible gives us God recreating everything in Revelation 22. Now, the second chapter in the Bible is a zoom lens. It gives us sort of a different picture of God making everything, and it's a more intimate picture where he's scooping dirt from the ground. And Genesis 1 gives us God speaking Adam into existence, but Genesis 2 gives us God breathing, God using his hands and Forming man, but then breathing uh, man, his, his breath, his life, his animus into man, and man becomes a living being, um, and then making woman from Adam's side. So it's a, it's, a, it's a focused, sort of more intimate, not sort of a more intimate picture that's a different, it's a different angle on Genesis 1. Um, after he makes man and woman, we get another sort of interesting sidestep into the story. Where we see, we see God, we see the first marriage. We see God showing Adam that it's not good for him to be alone. And, and, and then uh, saying that it's not good for man to be alone. It's the first not good we have in the Bible. Genesis is full of good, good, good. All of God's creation is good. And then we get to Genesis 2 and, and God looks at Adam without woman alone. And he says it's not good for man to be alone. Because God's not alone, right? And we're made in his image. So we're, we're seeing that we image the Trinity uh, with one another in community and in the community of marriage in a really special way. 
Um, but then he helps Adam see the same thing that, hey, it's not good that I'm alone. There's not a there's not a helper fit for me. As he looks at all the animals and names them. And and so my point is marriage is the second. It's essentially the second thing that happens in the Bible. It's, it's in the second chapter. Genesis chapter two. We see the first marriage. And then the second to last chapter in the Bible, Revelation 21, we see a marriage again. We see uh, Christ, our Lord and our Savior, marrying his people that he's redeemed at infinite cost, the cost of his body and soul, his bride, the church. So marriage is the second thing and the second to last thing. We see in the Bible, creation is the first and the last. And so, and then the, this is just for free, but the third thing and, this, and the third to last thing in the Bible are um, the the serpent. Uh, the serpent sort of winning and, and deceiving mankind and causing creation to crack. And then the third to last chapter is, uh, or the third to, last th- third to last thing that happens is the dragon, the serpent being defeated by Jesus, uh, the second Adam. And so, all about to say, I brought up that because it's a, it's a chiasm. It's a, it's, a, it's a ring structure that God gives us. And the point of that is not to tell you it's a ring structure. The point of that is that the, the second and the second to last thing um, that we have in all the Bible, in this word that we have from the Lord about what is the meaning of life, where are we headed, what is God doing, what is the purpose of everything, is, is marriage. It's what we're made for. Whether we're married or not, whether we ever want to be married or not, history is headed toward God making a bride for his son. And Jesus winning that bride at infinite cost to himself. That is what we're made for, is to be the bride of Jesus Christ. Our maker, our savior, the lover of our souls. So marriage is what we are saved for. We're not just saved to have forgiveness of sins and to be uh, not hell bound. We're saved for intimate, for, for infinite and soul satisfying intimacy that marriage and sex here are just a picture of. Um, they're just a picture of a taste of something far greater that's coming. Okay. Um, so for every single person on the planet, marriage matters, even for those that, that are not part of Christ's bride now, and that never will be. And that makes me sad to say, but millions won't be. They were made to be. Um, And so as we talk about marriage for the next few minutes, I just wanted to start with that to capture your interest and to say this is the farthest thing from uh, something that only concerns some people. So I'm just going to mention marriage in a a few different sort of contexts, a few things about marriage. And the first that I want to say is is simply but profoundly that that marriage is to be a friendship. It's to be a deep and abiding uh, friendship that we enjoy, where we enjoy one another. Um, and it's profound for a lot of reasons. And one of those reasons is that when in the relief of um, the ancient Near Eastern context that we ought to see it in, and the Bible gives us marriage within that ancient Near Eastern context. It's not a modern context. The Bible was written uh, over about 1,500 years from about 3500 BC to, um, and I say that it wasn't written from, why did I say 3500 BC from, um, from 15, about 1500, 1400, um, 
BC, excuse me, to, um, to, to, to a bit past zero, yeah, zero AD, to just, you know, 100 AD, let's say. So, so over the course of about 1500 years, um, certainly an ancient Middle Eastern, Near Eastern document. And in that context, um, certainly in, um, in cognate cultures, in, in the cultures that surrounded God's people, Israel, um, marriage was not seen typically as, as for friendship. It wasn't, and friendship is, is something, it's a, it's a love relationship. You know, philos is the Greek word for, for the love, the friendship love, as C.S. Lewis helps us understand so, so wonderfully in his book, The Four Loves, which I would highly recommend if you have not read it. Um, but friendship is a love between peers. It's not a forced love. It's not a love we're bound to. It's a love of choice. And it's a love, you know, Jack Deere, I heard him teach just a couple weeks ago live. And one of the things he's, he's, he's obsessed with the idea, with the truth of the fact that Christ has saved us for friendship with himself. And um, he he just talks about how look friends like each other they have an affinity for each other and they they um what what characterizes the friendship that you enjoy the person so he wants to enjoy Christ and deeply wants to be enjoyed by Jesus um Jesus loves all of his children but but there are different levels of enjoyment and friendship and we see that in um the different even in, with his disciples he was closest to and best friends with John in the bible and so um, all that to say that uh, the idea of friendship in the ancient Near East in, within marriage and as a, a sort of foundation piece for marriage um, is set, as something that really characterizes the marriage was, was not common. It's kind of more common today. Uh, it was not common at all. And to the degree that it is common today, I, I would say that it's, that's because it's grown out of the biblical worldview. So as, as typical... The Bible was way ahead of its time. Um, we see some of that truth in Proverbs 2, 16 through 17. And the word um, companion is used in the Hebrew. And that word uh, f- for a husband and his wife. And it basically says, don't betray the companion of your youth by running off and adulterizing and, and seeking other men or women. Um, don't forsake the companion of your youth. That's the way that it describes um, marriage. You are married to your companion. And that word companion in the Hebrew means the closest of friends. Um, Derek Kidner, an Old Testament commentator, probably my favorite overall, says, This is a far cry from the not uncommon ancient idea of a wife as chattel, which means just property, uh, and childbearer. Chattel and childbearer, but not companion. And again, it, it, it brings in so much. We are to, you are to enjoy as a husband, your wife. She is to enjoy you. You're to have a friendship based on um, shared likes. You're to share your minds and your hearts and your emotions and your affections and, your, and every bit of your lives together. You're to pursue your deepest um, enjoyments together. You're to pursue the Lord together. Um, but there's to be a deep enjoyment and sharing of life in that relationship, and and friends are equals. And again, in the ancient Near East, that just wasn't the case typically. Um, spouses were not thought of as equals. The man was almost always the lord over his wife. And there's a sense in which we do see we do see that in the scriptures. Uh, the the Abraham is called Sarah, Sarah's lord, 
And the man is the spiritual head of the house in the scriptures. And even because because that's the biblical model, even even today, that's to be the case. But that doesn't mean we're to lord it over our wives. You have to mix. You have to meld the those two ideas, the idea that the man is to be the spiritual head of the house. Um, but not to lord it over. And, and, and indeed, it's it's um, it's a pairing of equals. And we see that again in Genesis one and two at the beginning in the first marriage, the, the first creation of man and woman. We are both made in God's image and uh, together we image God better than we can apart. And um, the woman is, is made. Adam is made from the dirt, but the woman is made from Adam's side. There's a special kinship there between the two. And when and he realizes that he's not, it's not, God realizes, it, he, you know, realizes, God knows that it's not good for man to be alone. He speaks it, and then he has man to realize something's, something's wrong here. I need an opposite equal. That's literally what the Hebrew term in Genesis 2 means. Uh, a woman is, is man's opposite equal. Very different, but equal in worth and dignity and, and very much a compliment for the man. Someone to look to stand toe to toe with him and to look into his eyes in every way he's equal, but to oppose him in love in all the best ways, um, to sharpen him as iron sharpens iron and his exists in the best friendships. Um, Derek Kidner uh, goes, actually, I think it's Keller, Tim Keller, another favorite teacher who goes on to talk about, he, he talks about the idea of a woman as both exclusive lover and best friend and how, how alien that pairing was. Uh, in the ancient Near East, but how biblical it is. He goes on to say, all the marks of friendship, constancy, sensitivity, speaking the truth and love to each other, counseling each other, must be present in marriage. This is the highest view of marriage possible. In an age when people did not marry for romantic joy or for intimate companionship, Proverbs call for both. And again, in on friendship, before we move to the next topic, um, in friendship, you choose your friends, and that's very present. In, in the, the proverbial um, picture of marriage is that the man is, uh, just by the way marriage is spoken about, the man is to choose his wife and the woman is to choose her husband. So it's way, way ahead of its time. But we are to do so knowing within the co- making covenant with one another uh, before others, before witnesses, and especially before God as our witness. Um, saying that we will in this covenant we are we are pledging ourselves to one another exclusively in this love relationship and to one another and that's what exclusively means to one another only in this way sexually uh and in the deepest intimacy to put each other first after god and before anyone else even before our kids um until death parts us and it's within that covenant that friendship this friendship in marriage that is unlike any other friendship flourishes it's within that security that the covenant provides i'm not going anywhere and neither are you so we can we can be totally honest with each other we can know each other warts and all and we know that we're not going anywhere and it's within the security blanket that that provides that the friendship and the love flourishes so um i just want to ask you if you're listening and you are listening (laughs) if you're married is your spouse your best friend or nearly so and if you're not married, but would be open to marriage, have you been as concerned about this, this friendship idea, as about sexual chemistry? Um, and, and one of the things that Tim Keller notices 
noticed for, for years, I heard him say this a number of times in his sermons throughout the decades, he, he pastored and preached to mainly at least the first 20 years, I think, uh, people in their 20s that were, they were there after, out of college, young uh, professionals trying to make a mark on the world and trying to make money and um, before they got, got married, settled down, or maybe early in their marriage, before they had kids or when they had young kids, before the kids had to go to school, et cetera, in the city, um, staying up late, working hard, you know, 60, 80 hour weeks, very talented, driven professionals. Uh, anyway, young people there in their 20s, typically, maybe early 30s. And he said, I've seen countless of you throughout the years uh, miss, just walk right past people that would be wonderful spouses. Why? Because you're not looking at friendship. You're not looking at affinities. You're not looking at the things that last and that you can build on. You're looking simply pretty much at the surface, at the glitz, at the glitter. Uh, what does the person look like? Um, you're looking at the sexual chemistry and you're missing the most important thing that actually matures and ripens. Whereas now sex gets better in marriage um, over the years. It, um, especially if you if you go into the marriage not um, having saved yourself, right? And God can redeem that if you haven't. But having saved yourself for one another, you have no regrets. Um, you're not good at sex. You're not good at sex at first, but you're given within the covenant. You're given, hopefully, if you both live a long, long time, years and years and years to work on it, and it gets better and better. But we get less and less good looking, right? That's just the way it works. As we get older, typically um, the bloom fades but that's not true with character, with character and, and certainly character informs friendship with the sense of humor, with understanding each other, with laughing together, with crying together. Those things get richer over the years. Um, so to single people, um, look deeply. Don't be dazzled. Don't miss the qualities of the greatest worth because surface beauty has blinded you. Um, people of this bent that were looking on the surface um, in first century Palestine missed their Messiah because he wasn't anything to look at, Isaiah 53, 2. To quote J.R. Tolkien, all that glitters is not gold. So, friendship. Now, briefly, sex. Um, sex. Proverbs 5, 18, and 19. I'm going to read it just because it makes one blush, and then there's plenty of that in the Bible. Um, and then I'm going to make maybe one one main point about that. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Uh, that's right. That's in the Bible. Um, there's a whole book that makes that seem tame in the Bible called The Song of Solomon or The Song of Songs. That's pretty much all about marriage and sex. And, and and delighting in your spouse uh, physically and in other ways. Um, and by the way, within within that book, the only book in the Bible that's wholly devoted to to marriage and the beauty of marriage and the and the glories of marriage, um, and the challenges of marriage, there are kids are kids are nowhere to be found. So so as we talk about sex, just briefly, um, and we talk about kids that come from sex often, the fruit the fruit of the womb. Um, you know, in Genesis one, the, the commission that God gave to man and woman was be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So part of part of God's plan for filling the earth with his with his image and establishing his kingdom on earth is for us within the covenant of marriage to have children. But here's where the Roman Catholics. Here's one of the many places the Roman Catholics and I, I have many Roman Catholic heroes 
author heroes and friends. Uh, but here's where um, they get it wrong, in my opinion, and that is that um, there's too much of a focus on kids within marriage and, and marriage. Sex within marriage is basically for procreation. I think Song of Solomon militates against that idea as much of a blessing as children are, yes. But there are children in the in the only book that exclusively focuses on marriage in the Bible. Their kids are nowhere in the picture. Um, and so all that to say, let me press this home by, by way of application. If you're married and you don't have children, you have a complete marriage. Um, and that's all I'll say about that. Now, um, kids are a blessing from the Lord, of course. And I just love the, the, the back to the verse here. I love, and just want to press into this for a second, the, the, um, the language here. So, so, so first of all, procreation is God's idea. Um, the, 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 the active enjoyment, knowing each other in the most intimate way possible, um, sexually as a man and a wife that leads to procreation, that leads to children. Um, think about it. Children come from uh, ideally, right? This is how God made it to be. Anything else is a perversion of this. Ideally, kids come from a loving union of trust, openness, complete and utter um, uncoveredness and utter delight, utter physical delight to the point of orgasm, right? That's how God, that's God's, that's God's idea. Children are fruit of that union. Think about that. Think about how much that says about how much God loves children, how much he loves life, how that's, I mean, life, life, kids could come from, life could come from a painful, now sex can be painful, but a painful, disgusting process, like, I don't know, like, um, like hard work or sweat or, um, or, or slop on a plate, you know, throwing, throwing, uh, orphanage, orphanage slop onto a, onto a plate that, that, you know, somehow God could have made it so that children come from that. No, he made it so that children come from a delightful, orgasmic act of union between a man and a woman. Um, pleasure, what's my point? Pleasure is God's idea. Procreation, fruitfulness is God's idea. Satan hates kids and he hates sex. But the world has given sex to Satan. And, and we think, and a lot of Christians think, well, maybe even just in the back of their head, sex is... Satanic. No, it's, 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 and that's the first step toward hell right there. Don't give Satan what it's got. God made sex. God made all the pleasure organs. Um, Satan hates sex and kids and he seeks to derange both. So, so he seeks to take sex and put it anywhere outside of the bounds that God made it to be a blessing in. Outside of one man and one woman committed to each other in the covenant of marriage. He, take, he seeks to take that fire and take it out of the fireplace and put it anywhere else in the house so that it burns the house down. And indeed it will. Um, now, secondarily, sex is wonderful. It's a gift. Um, it is not the sumum bonum. It's not the greatest thing. Now, a man might differ with me. Um, it is not the, the thing in marriage. That's why I started with friendship and, and moved on to sex. Um, but it, it is a great thing. But it's more like my brother-in-law says it this way. Uh, he says, you know, and out of out of the many things in marriage that, that are a blessing and that are difficult and, and that are work. Uh, he said, you know, let's put marriage, let's put sex, let's say, on number 10 on the list. In other words, it's not it's not number one. It's not it's not the most important thing. Uh, but 
it's somewhere down the list, certainly behind friendship, but it is important and it's the glue. It's sort of like the glue that, that keeps you coming back together, like physically, literally, but not just physically, right? I mean, the Hebrews, they, they didn't say have sex. They didn't say, they didn't use a, you know, a cuss word, certainly for sex like we do. They didn't even say make love. They said, um, they said no. Abraham knew his wife and then they had Isaac. Um, so to know, it's not just a euphemism, right? Um, in fact, it's not a euphemism. It, it, um, it, it's a perfect and simple and profound expression of what is happening in marriage when a man and a woman come together. Is that you are knowing each other on the deepest level, physically, with every part of who you are, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Um, it's a, I think, I don't know if Matt Chandler coined this phrase, but it's a mingling of souls. That's right. It's exactly right. It's a mingling of souls. It's a sharing of souls. It's to know one another on the deepest level. And that's, that's the beautiful thing about it. It's so much deeper than physical knowing. And that's what we try to keep it. We simply try to keep it at that level of physical uh, when we do it outside of marriage and when we talk about it in our culture. And because of that, it's, we superficialize it. Um, but that's why God says it's not for, for anyone but two people, a man and a woman who have committed themselves lifelong to each other exclusively because, because it is a mingling of souls. When you leave that person and you go on to the next person, you're taking part of them with you. You're ripping, you're, you're, you're giving part of them to you and you're taking part of them with, with you. Um, you, and that's so painful and that's not the way it's supposed to be. Um, and think about sex too, again, not just on a physical level, but the physical. We're tied together creatures. We are psychosomatic. We're multi-layered. We are, we are bodies. We are sort of enfleshed souls. We are bodies. We are the immaterial too, the soul, um, that animates us. And, and yet all that within us, it makes part of a single person, one person, Taylor. I'm a body. I have a body. I, I, I have a soul. Um, and those two things unite mysteriously, right? You can cut my body open and look at it with a microscope, but you can't see what animates me. You can't see my soul, um, but it's there too, right? And so within a person, you have these two things. And really, uh, sex is a, is a beautiful picture of sort of pre-fall man, where a man and woman come together again, right? The first man and woman, Adam and Eve, they were, they were naked and they were unashamed, Genesis 2.25. And within the marriage bed, you can come together again, naked, literally no clothes on, unashamed. Uh, and it's it's a it's a picture of sort of a reentry into Eden, of of total trust, of total openness. This is the way it's supposed to be. I'm not saying it's always the way it is. It's the way God made it to be. And this is something that we can shoot for, that we can look toward, that we can work toward as married couples, um, um, looking at Christ, being freed in Him, being healed in Him. Um, seeing sex as a way of, of worshiping him together, right? Of giving ourselves to one another and in so doing and worshiping our maker, the one who made sex. Um, it's his idea, right? But that physical, that physical, um, that physical lack of any covering, of any hiding is a picture of an emotional and intellectual, a spiritual openness and transparency and frankness that we were made for in every relationship, right? 
we have it specially in marriage, but we are we're made we only hide from each other, from God, and from uh, from ourselves because of sin. So Christ brings us into transparency and openness, um, and was shamed for us, um, and, and took our sin, that which causes us shame, and to and to hide. Uh, he took our sin upon himself, and he crucified it, and he defeated it, and he buried it. So, so sex is a wonderful picture of all this. Um, okay, adultery. I just want to say, don't do it. Just for the sake of time. Um, Proverbs is big on this. It uh, it starts essentially almost starts with adultery. And, and, and a big part of the first 10 chapters, the first third of the book is on the adulteress, the seductress. And, and again, why not, why not the man who's trying to seduce the woman? There's plenty of that, right? Yes, but Proverbs was written to young men. So it's, 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 there's a sense in which it's, it's written to young men from a father to his son, giving him life wisdom. Here's how to live life well, son. And every young man needs to be sat down and told over and over again, son, look, pornography, sex outside of marriage. Your hormones are going to go nuts. These things are going to be banging at your door. Run from them. God made sex. It's his idea. It's a gift. It's not a bad thing, but it's made to be done in the right way with the right person in the covenant that points us to God, that's safe and that's fruitful. Uh, run from the adulteress, right? And, and, I, and I say porn because that is the, that is the way that I think adultery uh, and lust um, and the perversion of sex happens most in our culture, at least first, with young men. Um, and I'm not saying women can't get sucked in by it too, but men are more visual, and I think it's more of a more of a guy problem than a girl problem. Um, obviously, it's a multi-billion dollar industry, and it's ever-present because of the smartphone. And I can't even imagine having grown up. I'm old enough that I didn't grow up with smartphones. I didn't grow up with a phone in my hand, thank God. Um, I can't imagine the temptation for, for young people and for young men today. Um, but... Uh, it, porn produces adultery in the heart. Lust, lust is committing adultery with a woman in your heart, and the heart is where sin starts. So, um, cut it out. Whatever you have to do, get get rid of whatever it is that's leading you to pornography. Find a band of brothers or sisters. Get in a D group if you're in our if you're at Surgeon Galleria and confess it. Bring it into the light. Get help. Um, the average affair starts at age 36, and that's essentially the average age of, our, of men in our congregation. So we need to be, we need to be talking about pornography. We need to be talking about adultery and temptation. We need to be confessing it. We need to be running from it. It's a real and present um, danger. And, uh, and I think, and I, and I haven't looked up the stats, but I think that even among, even in the church, even among Christians that pornography um, regular looking, looking at it regularly and, and being addicted to it. And I would imagine that if you look at it regularly, you are addicted. It's so addicting. Um, is a is a problem that I think afflicts over well over half of men in the church. I, I, again, I haven't looked that stat up, but I've read I've read stats before, stats before, and, and it's 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 pervasive. Um, so it's 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 whew, it's there. Let's fight it, but let's bring it out into the light. You're not the only one. Christ paid. He laid his life down to to cleanse you from that crap, to deliver you from that crap. And to bring you out into a broad and a wide place. Um, so let's bring it out into the light. Uh, Derek Kidner, again, um, after writing about the godly wife 
in the Proverbs and the High Calling of Marriage, he, he writes this. He, gets, he says, against so high a view of marriage, sexual sin is presented in the darkest colors. It is a squandering of the powers that were designed for the founding of a true family that should be one's own close-knit and divinely blessed. That's 5, 9 through 23 of Proverbs. It's an exchange of true intimacy for its parity, 5, 19 and 20. It's a parting with one's honor, 5, 9 and 6, 33, and with one's liberty, 23 verses 27 and 28. It is to throw away one's best years, 5, 9 and 11, and possibly one's last possessions, 29, 3 and 6, 26. It is to court physical danger and social disgrace, 6, 26 and 6, 32 through 35. And this is not all. Those who think to explore this way are flirting with death. Proverbs 2, 18 through 19. Now, having said this, let me just say that, remind us, as we take a step back, take a breath, and then move toward a close. Um, taking all this with the utmost seriousness, because it is so serious. It can, as Kidner just said, it can lead us to death. Pornography, adultery, sexual perversion can lead us to death. And that's exactly what Satan wants. Sex as God created it, leads to life and delight. But Satan wants to derange it, pervert it, um, take it out of its God-given parameters, and have it to destroy us, and indeed it can. Not just physically, but not just temporally, and not just physically, but eternally. It can, it can drag us down to hell. But, but with all that said, let's remember that the book of Hosea, the minor prophet Hosea, and Hosea is told by God, to go marry a prostitute. Why? So cruel, you might think, because he says, that's the perfect picture of the way that my people treat me. I've given them myself in covenant. I've given my love, my exclusive love to them, and they've gone and they've run after other lovers that abuse them, that hate them, that leave them hanging, that leave them wanting. They are, un my people are unfaithful. They are a prostitute. They have prostituted themselves. Um, They've traded the fountain of living waters for broken cistern that can't slake thirst. And that's what we do when we look to anything else to satisfy us or to secure us. That's called idolatry. We do it with money. We do it with the opinions of other people. We do it with stuff. We do it with jobs. Um, we do it with education. We do it with anything and everything but God. And Hosea shows us that when it comes to our relationship with God, we're all prostitutes. Sin isn't just breaking the rules, it's cheating on our maker and the lover of our souls. Uh, so he became sin to save us. He came down and gave himself to us uh, at infinite cost to himself to save us. Um, and in Christ, he has made, God the Father has made a way for us to be cleaned, cleared, and restored to him in full and unbreakable covenant love once again. Um, so this is the truth that Hosea points to, and it it's the truth that ties, again, ties the first marriage in the Bible in Genesis 2 to the last marriage in the Bible of Christ and his people, his church, um, in Revelation 21. So again, marriage is the thing that frames the Bible, and because it frames the Bible, it frames history. It is, it is, it is, marriage is significant for and relevant to all of us. Um, divorce, I will be <laughs> very short on. Um, I'll simply say God hates it. Don't do it. Um, what God has joined, let not man separate. Um, the one ground that we're given for divorce 
and reluctant at that is um, in the Bible is is adultery. It, when, when your spouse is sexually unfaithful with you, if they've cheated on you, you have biblical grounds for divorce. But I've seen a number, a goodly number of of um, a marriages in which the spouse cheated on his or her husband um, in some cases for mo- for numbers of years, and the husband or wife stayed love their spouse and every single one of those marriages is in a wonderful place today richer than ever and both spouses are pursuing jesus so um there is redemption stay if you can um but outside of adultery don't don't divorce your spouse um stats show if you want a good book on marriage the meaning of marriage by tim and kathy keller um stats show that for those that are deeply unhappy in marriage and there are even in the best marriages times and seasons where you're just unhappy Marriage is a slog. It's hard. Stats show that if you stick it out, within five years, those people are happy, happier than they than they would have been, or happier than happier than those that got divorced, happier than they were previously. Um, and marriage isn't about happiness in, in, in any way. It's about holiness, and holiness leads to happiness. It does. It's about making us more like Jesus. And Jesus, he didn't, you know. Yes, ultimately, it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. But he didn't come save us to be happy. He saved us out of love and at infinite cost to himself. And um, and that's how he's able to bring us to himself. So as husbands, we're called to imitate with our wives. We're called to imitate Christ and to love to love um, our wives as, as Jesus loved the church and laid his life down for her. So it's a high calling. And it's not always about our happiness, right? There's great sacrifice involved, just like with children, right? I mean, having kids, they make you happy, but they provide plenty of happiness. But it's not they're not about... God doesn't give you kids to make you happy. Um, they require astonishing sacrifice, and we're glad to give it, right? Um, singleness, I've, I've, I've touched on it enough, and, and not enough, I haven't, but some, and, and, I, and I touched on it in the beginning, and it, just for sake of time, I'm just going to say, um, man, not only not only is the marriage not for everybody, but um, especially because of Jesus, like we can be, we can be fulfilled, totally fulfilled persons, um, and, and be single. And in fact, singleness is a high calling. And in first Corinthians seven, Paul, who was single, recommends singleness over marriage. He said, I, I'm speaking here, but I think I have the Lord in this. I'd recommend singleness. If you're not married, stay unmarried. Don't get attached because you can be more effective for the Lord. You don't have to worry about your spouse. When you're married, you have to worry about pleasing them. When you're not married, you can just worry about pleasing God. Okay. That's true. That is true. Singleness is not like second rate Christianity. If anything, just flip it. <laughs> I'm not going to flip it because marriage is a high calling. But um, if you're single, take advantage of that. Um, and and Jesus, again, to go back to what I started with, Jesus is making of his people a bride for himself. And Jesus was single and he was the most fulfilled human being on the planet. Um the, the Proverbs end with, uh, kind of start with a man talking to his son and then immediately gets in deeply into the dangers of the adulteress. There's a woman, um, it, you know, that's prominent in the beginning and then you have Lady Wisdom in chapter eight. And, um, and then at the end, Proverbs ends with, uh, it ends with a picture of the godly wife, the virtuous woman, uh, the, the Isha Chayi and, there are so many ways in which she's like the anti-Eve, like Adam and Eve, the anti-Eve. Eve um, steps out ahead of her husband. He's passive. She takes the reins. She engages the enemy. Uh, she gets she gets God's word wrong. 
she's decisive in the wrong way, she disobeys God, she brings her husband into it, and he's fully culpable, obviously. Um, and and it, ultimately, it's the, the fall is at his doorstep, which is, I think, one reason sin is passed down through the man, uh, which is, again, this is corollary, but uh, it's, a, it's an important, a very important reason that um, our, our Savior was born not of man, but of woman, because he was fully human being born from woman, but the sin was not passed down to him because he does not have a human father. Um, so all that to say, back to the, the way that Proverbs ends. In ancient books, uh, position was typically very important. And the fact that Proverbs ends with a picture of this woman, this, this wife, who's an anti-Eve, uh, she blesses her husband. The fruit, think about that with regard to Eve. The fruit, with the fruit, Eve cursed the world. With the, the fruit of this woman's hands, this Proverbs 31 woman, is a blessing to her husband, to her family, to the society and community around her, to her household. Um, the heart of her husband trusts her, not Adam, right? She does him good and not harm all the days of her life, not Adam. So there's a sense in which this woman, like through this woman and her virtue and her godliness, um, she, she reverses the curse. Hers is a high calling. She, her husband is well thought of in the city at the gates where all the decisions, the civic decisions were made because of her. She isn't just in the kitchen, although she is. She takes care of her household. She's also out considering the field and buying it. She's a woman of, of transaction, of commercial transaction, of business. She's a woman of the home. She's a woman who is a faithful wife. She's good to her children. She manages the household. Um, Derek Kidner, again, I'll, par I'll finish with his word. He has a great, a great sort of summary of, of this woman. He says, far from being a cipher, the woman is the making or the undoing of her husband. On her constructive womanly wisdom chiefly depends the family's stability. Proverbs 14.1. And if she happens to possess exceptional gifts, she will have ample scope for them. The capable wife in Proverbs 31, 10 and following is administrator, trader, craftswoman, philanthropist, and guide whose influence spreads far beyond her home, though it is centered there, and though her achievements are, as she should wish, valued most of all for their contribution to her husband's fortune and good standing. So she supports him. She, um, she has his full trust. She blesses him. And in doing, in doing so, she blesses the Lord. Um, so this is the picture that, that the author of the Proverbs chooses to end the book, uh, sort of the consummate book on wisdom in the Bible. It's wonderful. Um, marriage is a massive blessing. It's a cornerstone for society. So when it crumbles, society crumbles, which is why divorce is so deadly to any country and not just to any household. It's not for everyone. Singleness is a gift, especially to the Christian, <clears throat> but it is the relational destination <clears throat> of every new creation in Christ. Marriage is where we're headed, which was God's plan from before the beginning. <coughs> and the ultimate answer to why marriage is such a powerful institution, <clears throat> excuse me, <coughs> for good or for ill, marriage is God's idea. Let us honor it and our spouses. And in so doing, we honor him 